As we continue our study of the doctrines of grace, we're going to return to the book of Ephesians. So if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We have been spending the last few weeks considering the sovereign grace of God as presented in the doctrines of grace. And in doing so, we've been following the acrostic tulip. We come today to the I in our tulip. Hard to believe we've been doing this now for five weeks. Before we get started today, though, I would like to remind us of a few things. I'd like to remind us of why we are doing this series at all. As we've said, these doctrines tend to cause some controversy in the church world today. So a very fair question is, why do it? Why do it at all? Why study these things? Or more importantly, why preach them from the pulpit on a Sunday morning? Why not reserve this for some study on Wednesday night or on some other day of the week? I know that some of what we are going through can be challenging to wrap our minds around. But you know what? That's good. John Piper, I love this quote. This might be my favorite quote from any theologian ever. He said about these doctrines, quote, These are mind-boggling things. And it's good to have your mind boggled. So many people run away from mind boggles. They don't want to have their mind boggled. They like Jesus in a little box, end quote. We are doing this because these doctrines are thoroughly biblical. They leap off the pages of Holy Scripture. And because of that, because they are thoroughly biblical, I believe with all my heart that studying these doctrines leads to a greater vision of God, a deeper appreciation for His grace, a more humble disposition before Him, and higher worship. The reality is, friends, that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine. We truly are. And we don't realize the depth of our depravity. When we refuse to, to see the pitch blackness of our sin, it keeps us from seeing the contrasting radiant beauty of the diamond of the grace of God. I say diamond because the analogy is often employed of a jeweler showing a diamond that any good jeweler brings out the diamond and a black piece of fabric behind it so that the contrast of the diamond really shines brilliantly. Or you can consider the stars in the sky. If you were to go outside right now and look up to the sky, you would not see the stars. Well, where are they? Have they been taken away? Did God take them out of the sky during the day? No, they're still there. But they have been brilliantly outshined by the sun. It's not until midnight when the sky is dark or you go away from the city out into the country further away from the light of the city that you can look up and see the brilliance of the, the night sky. 
but it needs the contrasting blackness to shine forth in all of its beauty. And my friends, this is what we see in the doctrines of grace is that it portrays, it brings out the biblical portrait of the pitch blackness of human nature so that the brilliance of the gospel shines forth in all of its beauty and glory. That's why we're doing this. And further, whenever we understand how sovereign God is in in all ways and in all times, even over our salvation, we will have true assurance of salvation. When we know that this is God's work, it's not my own, we will have true assurance of salvation. So, with that in mind, let's stand and we'll read our passage together. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the living God. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I ask for your your help this morning as we consider the irresistible grace of God. We know that the human nature, Lord, finds this repulsive. I ask that you would humble us and give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would see how wonderful this is from the text, from the scriptures that I wouldn't stand here before everyone trying to use human reason and wisdom to convince people of something that I have contrived or that some man has contrived, but that we would see from your word the beauty of grace, how gracious grace is, Lord. I pray that you would use my feeble attempt this morning, that you would glorify yourself today and edify your people. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. As I said, we are at the eye in our tulip, which means irresistible grace. So what is irresistible grace? 
Irresistible grace is the sovereign and supernatural work of the Spirit of God in the heart whereby He overcomes our deadness in sin to make us alive in Christ. It is in this work in the heart that the Spirit gives us a new nature in which we freely and happily choose to exercise saving faith in Christ. Many theologians call this monergism, which is a real fancy SAT word, meaning that God works in the heart without the help of the sinner. Moner, meaning mono, one, one working, God's working in the heart. It's also referred to in the phrase, regeneration precedes faith. What does that mean? It means that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, first regenerates the person, the sinner, before the sinner exercises faith in God. It is because of this understanding that many opt for calling this doctrine effectual grace or even victorious grace. This also serves to clarify that we're not saying that no one can ever resist the grace of God. That's one common objection to this, but we know very well by reading the scriptures that there are plenty of texts that show us that people resist the grace of God. They do. The very nature of gospel proclamation would indicate the reality of that fact. Why do I say that? Because as we proclaim the gospel, some will hear it and receive the grace of God. Some will be drawn by the grace of God. Others will hear of the grace of God and say, no, thank you. I don't want it. What are they doing? They are resisting the grace of God. So it can indeed be resisted. And I would even like to add that sinners hardened in their sin will only ever resist the grace of God. Of God. They will never hear the gospel and think that it is a delight to their ears. They will not hear of the work of Christ on the cross and be filled with gratitude. If you think back to your, your own conversion, think of how much time elapsed in your life before conversion, how many times you heard the gospel. How many times people told you of the good news of, of grace through faith in Christ Jesus? And you said, no, I don't want that. I, I don't want to repent. I don't want to turn from God. I don't think I'm that bad. I don't think I need that. I think I'm doing okay. I'm okay. I'm good. Thank you. No thanks. Until one day, Something happened. It was like the light was turned on. And you heard the gospel. And you said, why have I never heard this before? This is amazing. This is beautiful. Yes, I would very much like to come to Jesus. Yes, I would love to repent of my sins. They've done me no good anyway. Irresistible grace, this doctrine, wants to answer the question, what? happened? What changed? Why did you resist and resist and resist and you had no interest in God until one day you did? What changed? Were you just now smarter and wiser? 
Did you just finally decide to make a better decision? Perhaps you were older in age and had more life experience, and so this was, you were in a different headspace to receive the gospel. Well, this doctrine would answer no. That's not what happened. That the reality is that God had appointed a day and a time for you to be saved. Think about this. And he kept you alive. Though there were probably many times where maybe you had a near-death experience or that car almost hit you that time or you had a bad report from a doctor and you thought that it was going to end poorly but you still stayed alive until the day that you professed faith in Christ. You know what was happening? is God was keeping you alive. Why? Because he had appointed a day and an hour for you to believe in Jesus. And then on that day and hour, he opened your eyes. He overcame your rebellion. And suddenly, you saw his grace as irresistible. It was all you could do to come to him. This is the doctrine that everybody experiences first as it speaks to the moment of salvation. You might not ever experience the unconditional election of God or the limited atonement of God, but you have experienced God's irresistible grace. You have experienced it. So this morning, we will do as we've done in the past two weeks. We're, we're going to work briefly through this text. And I, I want to remind us, as I've said every week, that we're not going to deal with everything in the text because we're just trying to see what this text shows us about this doctrine. And as always, we're, we're going to call other texts as witnesses to see that I believe that the clear teaching of Scripture is that though no man can, can, can come to God or will come to God to be saved, that God overcomes our rebellion by the power of the Spirit and brings us to Himself. So let's get started. Let's look at our natural disposition in verses 1 through 3. He's talking to you, believer, whoever is reading this. He's talking to you, and he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In order for us to grasp irresistible grace, I think it's important for us to begin with our natural disposition because this is the proverbial sheet of black velvet behind the diamond. And also because that's where Paul begins here, isn't it? He says, you, 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 this was you, this is what you were like. And let me ask, is there anything in those three verses, any redeemable quality about yourself in verses 1 through 3? No, there's not. Paul has nothing good to say of our natural disposition, not anything good. In fact, he begins with saying, you were dead. You were dead. Dead in your sins and trespasses. 
we're going to look as we work through this, there is a, a, what's called the unholy trifecta of the world, the flesh, and the devil. This will help us to see how desperate of a need we were, we had, our desperate disposition before Christ came to save us. You were dead. We're starting by looking at the flesh. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. There's this all-important word here, dead. It's the Greek word nekros. And I want to say that to you because it probably sounds familiar. Nekros. It's where we get words like necrosis from. It means, you guessed it, dead. In a couple of instances in the New Testament, this word is translated corpse. And it's referring to an actual physical corpse. Folks, the word means dead. It means dead. I, I, I stress this because a lot of people today say, well, the human condition is that we're very ill or we're very sick or we're drowning in the ocean and we need to be t- saved and brought back up to the surface. But the reality is that Paul is saying, you're not drowning. You're at the bottom of the ocean drowned. It's over. There's, there's no pulse there's no heart beating. You're not on a respirator. You're not, you're not in hospice care. You are dead. It's over. You're dead. And this should be no surprise to us because God told us, told Adam in the garden from the very beginning, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is what? Death. Not illness, not very sick, not brokenness, not hard times, not anxious, not you're worried. You're dead. The wages of sin is death. We are, of course, more like the walking dead as we continue to breathe, to act, and to carry on with life. Obviously, he says you were walking in sin. You were living in sin This deadness is a spiritual deadness. It is unresponsiveness to the things of God, to the glory of God. Paul then characterizes this deadness by speaking of sin, that we were dead in sin. And this is a Hebrew idiom here, talking about being in sin, walking in sin. It's meaning that we are consumed with sin. It it is everything. It's everywhere. We're walking in it. We're waiting in it. We are living in sin. And he even says, in the passions of the flesh. I want us to be reminded very quickly that the biblical understanding of sin is not just the obvious wicked activity that we see of drug use, alcohol, and pornography, okay? That's not all that sin is. Romans 14.23 tells us, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What does that mean? He also tells us, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, to do it unto the glory of God. What does that mean? It means that if you don't do everything you do in such a way that God gives glory, God gets glory, 
you're sinning. That means if you run on the treadmill without doing it unto the glory of God or in faith, you are sinning. That means if you don't raise your children through faith in the power that God commands, you're sinning. If you don't eat a flapjack in faith, in the power of God unto his glory, you're sinning. That is the biblical portrait of sin. So then, all that unbelievers do is sin. Everything. Every second of their life, whether it's opening the car door, cleaning up the backyard, or the obvious sin, everything in the unbeliever's life is sin. They are living in the passions of their flesh, walking in sin and trespasses. This is why Paul tells us in Romans 8, 7 and 8, that the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. Folks, hostile. That is war language. We are at war with God. It does not submit to God's law, he says. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot please God, for they don't want to. They only want what their flesh and fallen mind dictate to them. Church, before Christ, this was you. That all you could do was sin. That was all you did in your entire day was sin and sin and sin. As if that's not bad enough, he gives us the world. He says that we were following the course of the world. The world is, is meaning, the word here for world, is, is pointing to the world's systems, the things that society goes along with, that society and the culture say are acceptable and good and normal. Another word that we might use is secularism. It is all of the ways of an unbelieving culture in society. You followed the world that said it was okay to look and not touch. You followed the ways of the world that said it's okay to engage in sexual relationship outside of marriage. You were following the world that says it's okay to prioritize little league over church. You followed the world that said it's okay for your wife to lead in the home. You were following the world that says it's okay to vote for a candidate that is for the dismemberment of babies in the womb. You followed the world that says your career pursuit is the most important pursuit in your life. The world you were following on its way to hell. It's this world that causes you to feel peer pressure. You remember growing up hearing about peer pressure and we think that once we leave elementary school, peer pressure is not real. But do you know what keeping up with the Joneses is? It is adult peer pressure. That is peer pressure. I'm trying to keep up with everyone else, what everyone else is doing. That's what it means to be following the world. But then he also says you were following the prince of the power of the air. The third leg of this unholy trifecta. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air because he has been given the power to control world systems. You remember Ephesians chapter 6 later on in this letter. 
he says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, and listen closely, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That means that there is very real demonic influence in systems, world systems. Do you want to know why we live in a day and age where a man wins a woman of the year award? It's because there is real demonic influence taking place in the world. And people who are dead in their sins and trespasses are following along with it. This is how desperate the need is outside Christ, all you do is sin. You follow the world that all the world does is sin and the world that is controlled by the devil. Friends, this is utter hopelessness. There is no hope in this situation. You're dead in sin. He begins there. So let's make it more personal. Since this was you prior to being saved, how did you get saved? If you were dead in sin following the world that is controlled by the devil, how did you come to God? If Romans chapter 3 tells us that no one seeks for God, what happened that now suddenly you are a God seeker? How did you come to life if you were dead in sin? Let's look at verse 4. Spiritual resurrection. The two sweetest words in all of Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did He do? Made us alive together with Christ. We could probably sum up irresistible grace by saying that. That God made us alive. God did it. We were dead God made us alive. You, you were dead in sin. You were in rebellion. You were by nature a child of wrath who also lived in a way that you were storing up wrath for yourself. You could not and would not come to God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved you with uniquely and personally, He made you alive. He brought you to life. Paul shows us that this is a lavish display of the richness of God's mercy. And because of his great love that he loved us with, he had pity on our miserable estate. He didn't leave us dead in the muck and the mire on the side of the road. He did not leave us in our sin. He did not leave us in the grave. And this is the beauty of salvation, is that you were dead, but God made you alive. We will unpack this phrase that we mentioned earlier about regeneration preceding faith. R.C. Sproul said that this phrase captures the essence of Reformed theology. So what what does it mean? What does that, that mean? It means this. You were dead, God made you alive. It's the process by which he brings those dead in sin to be alive in Christ. That's what regeneration is. It sounds like a big word. It's a lot of syllables, but it's very simple. 
It means the process that, that of God bringing a dead heart to life. He's regenerating a heart. We typically are inclined to view the, the moment that we first professed Christ as that's the moment when we came to life. In other words, that we first professed Christ and then we came to life. Here, Because here's the thing, we have to deal with what it means to be made alive. It's, it's here in the text. Paul says it. So what happened first? Did you come to life and then you put it faith in God? Or did you put faith in God and then he gave you life? Which one is it? This text and some others that we will look at tell us that what happened is that God brought you to life. And then in the newness of life, we were now able and willing to put our faith in Christ Jesus. This is what we mean by saying that regeneration precedes faith. And this is what is meant by irresistible grace. These are big words that sound fancy, but they're very simple. Now, this seems perfectly reasonable as we see it here in the text, but there are a lot of people today who have a difficult time with this doctrine because they believe that this violates a person's free will. They believe that the one thing that God cannot and will not do is violate a person's free will. You've heard statements like, well, God is a gentleman. He stands at the door and knocks, and it's up to you to let him in or not. Friends, Paul writes that you were dead. If that text in Revelation 3 about Jesus standing at the door and knocking was meant for unbelievers, which it's not, he's speaking to the church, Christians. If that was meant for unbelievers, how kind and loving would it really be of Jesus to stand at the door and knock and wait for you to let him in when he knows that on the inside, on the other side of that door, you're dead? That's not very loving. Why don't you open the door? You're dead. You're dead in sin. Further, we've already established that we do not truly have free will the way that you and I think of free will. No, listen to me closely. Don't misunderstand. I want to walk through this very carefully. You see, free will is largely regarded as our ability to make choices spontaneously. What does that mean? That our choices are not influenced or compelled or conditioned by any other factor, good or bad, that there's nothing influencing you to choose something. Some have said that it means that our choices are not determined by any prior prejudice, inclination, or disposition. What does this mean? It means that nothing is determining why you choose something that you choose. In other words, if you choose to go to a particular place for lunch today, there is not a reason why you chose it. But we know that's not true, is there? If you choose to go to Abuelo's today for lunch, it's because, first of all, you're hungry. Second of all, it's lunchtime. Third of all, you like their fajita salad like my wife does. Those are all influencing your decision. Do you understand? So the, the, the reality of free will is that there's nothing that influences your decision-making, that you just make decisions just because. 
I went to Abuelos because. I chose to marry this person because. I work at this place because. But we know that's not what happens. We know that's not what happens at all. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 indicates to us very clearly that we don't choose that way. We are choosing how according to our nature. We're choosing according to our nature. Now, what I'm not saying is that we don't have the ability to choose. I'm not saying that you're a robot. I'm saying that what the Bible teaches us is that every decision that we make is from our nature, our predispositions. I went to Abuelos because I love enchiladas. That is what I mean. That's the kind of decision that we make, right? You went to sleep because you were tired. A truly free will is not compelled by anything. A truly free will goes to sleep simply because it wants to. But friends, we know that that is not true. As this text shows us that all that, we were, all that we were choosing before God is what? Sin. How do we know that? Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of what? Of the body and the mind. We are by nature children of wrath. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. He doesn't say we were freely deciding to do whatever we wanted to do without any compulsion. He's saying what we were doing was following our sinful nature. So, some people have come up with what they call prevenient grace. And whether or not you remember that is irrelevant the idea that is being conveyed, I believe, is conjured up in an attempt to prevent the destruction of so-called free will. In this view, God frees everybody from the power of sin when they're born so that they can freely choose without any compulsion, whether it be the sinful nature or a good nature, they are freely able to do whatever they want to do spontaneously without any compulsion whatsoever. Friends, is that what this text says? You're smart enough to be able to see very clearly this is not teaching that. This does not tell us that that's what happened. Further, how does that harmonize with being dead? If you're dead, you're dead. And you're going to do what dead men do. You're going to stink. You're going to rot. You're going to decay. You're going to lay there. Because those are the things that are consistent with deadness. Further, how can you have a mind that is hostile to God and also have the ability to come to God? Something in the text, in the scriptures, it must just be wrong. Or maybe they just don't mean what they're saying. Maybe Paul doesn't mean that you're hostile Maybe he doesn't mean that you're dead in sin, but I would be inclined to say the Holy Spirit authored this and he meant what he said and he said what he meant. The scriptures teach us that we do have the ability to choose and we have the ability to think and to reason. We're not mindless robots. 
We have the ability to choose and we are held responsible for our choices. But what the Bible teaches us is that human will is, the human will is always going to choose according to its nature. So, what does this mean? Is that if you are dead in sin, you are freely always going to choose to do what? Sin. If you are dead in sin, you're going to want to do sin. You're not mindlessly, robotically sinning. You are happily running to the bar, running away from God, running on the treadmill, not unto the glory of God, not in the faith, in the power of God. You are freely not believing and repenting because that's what you want to do. That's your nature. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So that is why God has to give us a new nature. This is what regeneration is. Is God giving you a new nature so that with this new nature where I did not want to choose God before, all I want to choose is God. And I'm choosing freely. And I'm choosing happily. And I am rejoicing in this decision because it's a new nature. My new nature wants Jesus. With this new nature, we happily and freely, not robotically, choose to come to Christ. I believe this text teaches it, but also several other places. I want to hit these really quickly. You can write this down. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. A very important conversation taking place between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus is this prominent teacher. Jesus says he's the teacher of Israel. He is a religious leader, comes to Jesus and says, you know, we we know that you're a teacher come from God. Jesus says, well, actually, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus responds by asking, how can a man, when he is grown, go back into his mother's womb to be born again? What is he doing there? He's representing what all of us do. Where's my part? What do I have to do? How can I exercise my free will to do this? To be born again? Jesus tells him, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Paul says here, God made us alive. Jesus in John chapter 3 says, you must be born again. You see the correlation. Being born... You are made alive, and you need to be born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again, or as Paul said it, unless you've been made alive. Notice, Jesus doesn't say that you need to be made better. He doesn't say that you need to use your free will to come to Jesus. He's essentially letting us know that our lives and our current disposition are so anti-God, so ruined, that we just need to start over. You just need a whole new life. Why do you think Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are a new creation? A new creation. You need to be born again. You need a whole new life. Then Jesus explains what being born again means or regeneration. 
That being made alive is a sovereign and supernatural work of God. Jesus tells him, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. That's the supernatural work of God. In other words, we can't see it. It's done by the spirit. It's invisible to our eyes. It's happening in here. He causes us to be born again. This work is also sovereign. It is God's choosing. It's entirely up to God how and when this happens and whom it happens to. How do we know that? Because Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. Jesus wasn't being hyperbolic here, friends. He said, we must be born again. He, he meant we must be born again. And he intentionally chose this turn of phrase because it shows how the Spirit of God does all of the work. The word there for wind is pneuma. The word for spirit is pneuma. He's using a play on words to show us that the Spirit's work is like the wind. Has anyone ever made the wind blow? If you have, please don't do it this summer. It gets really windy out there and dusty. Please stop. No, we don't do it, do we? It happens. It just it blows. And that's what Jesus is saying, is that those who are born of the Spirit, it just comes to you. The Spirit is just sovereignly and supernaturally gifted to the person and now working in the person to bring them to life. Ask Lazarus how much he helped Jesus bring himself back to life. What did he do? Mary tells you what Lazarus did. He said, Lord, it's been four days. He stinks. Are you sure you want to open the tomb? That's what Lazarus did. But Ezekiel 36 has a very important promise. Ezekiel 36, read that at home. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Numa. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit, Numa, the wind, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's God speaking in Ezekiel 36, forecasting, foreshadowing the work of regeneration and he's also telling us that it is sovereign and supernatural. How do we know that? He says, I will give you my spirit. It's supernatural. It's also sovereign. How do we know that? God says, I will. Four times in two verses. Four times. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. Do you know where your part is in Ezekiel 36? It's at the beginning of the passage. You have profaned my name among the nations. That's what we bring to the table. We have profaned the name of God among the nations. But God, so that he can vindicate the holiness of his name, he does all of it. Now remember, here what we are talking about is our need to be made alive and given a new nature the human condition is so radically sinful and depraved that Jesus says we need to be just born again. We need to start over. Paul says you're done, dead. 
God says in Ezekiel, you have a heart of stone. I'm not a doctor, but I know that if you have a heart of stone, you're going to be dead. You're not going to be alive. You're dead with a stony heart. But God sovereignly chooses to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. What's that? That's regeneration. That is being made alive. That is being resurrected. That is being brought to newness of life. This is irresistible grace. God taking your heart of stone, giving you a heart of flesh. Jesus tells us so clearly in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. How many people? No one. He doesn't say no one may. He says no one can, indicating inability. That word, draw, is a very funny word. It's the same word that they use about Paul and Silas when they were dragged into the marketplace. It's the same word that's used in one Greek poem to refer to putting a bucket of water in and dragging it out of the well with water. It's also a word that is used by the disciples who are hauling in a big catch of fish. In other words, Jesus is saying, no one can come to me unless the Father drags him. No one can come to me unless the Father hauls him in. The idea being expressed here is that those who are going to be saved are going to be saved. All those in the you who have been unconditionally elected before the foundations of the world, who the Son with the L limited atonement spilled His blood for, all of them will be saved. Do we really think God is going to leave His glory, the vindication of His holy name, in our hands? Friends, we can't even wake up when the alarm goes off. But we are going to assure that God is glorified the way that he deserves with our finicky, frail constitution? I don't think so. But also, he tells us in chapter 2, verse 8 of Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith. So we could ask, where is my choosing? What have I done? Because I distinctly remember putting my faith in Jesus. Yes, you did. And you must. And we must proclaim that all, as Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. The call does not change. You exercised faith in Jesus. Do you know where that faith came from? It wasn't in you. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2 in Ephesians. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is he saying? That when he regenerated you by the Holy Spirit, you have been given faith. And by that new given faith with this new nature, you now freely come to Jesus. And you exercise this faith that the Spirit has wrought in your heart in Jesus. When you couldn't before, why couldn't you do it before? You were dead. 
You had a sinful nature. You would only ever choose sin. But God brought you to life and He gave you a new nature. He removed your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. He put His Spirit within you that caused you to walk in His ways. And the first way that He did that was by causing you to exercise faith in Jesus Christ. That's the objection to free will. You did freely choose and you happily chose. And you wanted to. And you would do it again a thousand times over because you've been given a new nature by God himself. What about evangelism? Should we not evangelize because God's going to save them how he wants to anyway? By no means. Paul tells us in Romans 10, how can they have faith? If faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, how can they hear if no one preaches? How can they have faith if they don't hear? How can they hear if no one preaches? You proclaim the gospel, friends, to your friends, to your family, to your co-workers. Share the gospel with them. Use the biblical language of you must put your faith in Jesus. You must repent. You must believe. Why? Because we have human responsibility. But the difference is, is that someone who holds to the doctrines of grace understands I'm not going to convince them. God needs to give them sight. Further, everyone believes in this, even if they don't think so. How do I I say that? Have you ever prayed for a family member or a friend to be saved? Friend, how is God going to save that person if he can't overcome their free will? What you're asking is God to do something he can't do. But that's not the case, is it? We know that God is sovereign. We know that he must give them sight. We know that he must give us sight. This is why we pray with the psalmist, open my eyes that I might see great and wonderful things. Let's stand. I believe that every believer ought to come to learn and love the doctrine of the irresistible grace of God because when you do, you realize that though you were unable to come to God, God came and brought you to himself. Once you were blind, God gave you sight. Once you were deaf, God gave you ears to hear. Once you were dead, God gave you life. Once you were a child of wrath, God made you a child of God. All of this was done for you by a loving and merciful Father, all for his own glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for saving people like us this way. We thank you that though we would never come to you, though we would resist you and be in our rebellion still, if you hadn't overcome our rebellion, that you did, that you purposed long ago to do it this way to save sinners by making them alive in Christ Jesus, bringing us from death to life. Lord, I ask that if there's anyone here who has not experienced this regenerating work of the Spirit, that you would open their eyes to see, that they would hear of Christ coming and spilling his blood for them, bearing their sin, and that they would put their trust in his perfect finished work, Lord, by utilizing the faith that you had gifted them. Help us to grow in our appreciation of the grace of God sovereignly working in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.